This is, uh, this is our fifth week, as you've heard uh, in this series, uh, from this day forward. Uh, the first week, uh, Greg preached on the idea that speaking to others about Jesus um, is easy. He, ta- he, he read a story for us from the scriptures that where this, this woman had an encounter with Jesus and basically she went back and told her village, you, you got to see this guy, you got to meet this guy. In the second week, James talked about the authority that we have from God to be able to, uh, to disciple. Um, our theme passage has been from Matthew 28, the Great Commission. And the question that James asks is, what gives us the right? Well, Jesus gives us the right. In the third week, uh, Brother Roland, who you just heard pray, he, he talked about the fact that this, this thing we call Christianity is not just a Sunday morning thing. It's a, it's a lifestyle. It's a heart set. And then last week, Greg talked about the end of the beginning, uh, and that is baptism. And then we move on from that. And so uh, what I want to do now is I want to bring the fifth message, uh, which is going to be just a little bit different, um, but I'm not going to do this, of course, without starting with prayer. So let's go to God. Heavenly Father, I thank you for all the good things that we have. I thank you for the salvation that you've given us. Uh, thank you for the, the, the abundant life. Lord, it would have been enough for you to just give us life, but you gave us abundant life. And that also would have been enough but you gave us eternal life. And Father, we are forever in your debt, and we cannot repay that, but you've not asked us to. You've simply asked us to enter into a relationship with you and to trust you. And Father, we want to do that with all our hearts. And so as we look into your word today, help us to understand what it means to to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to know you and to know you well. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So the theme of my message is to know Jesus, our, our, our mission statement, which we are kind of revealing now, we've, we've updated it from the past, is to know Jesus and to make him known. And I want to focus today on the title of my message is to know Jesus, be discipled. So let me, let me start with a story. Um, every couple of years we hear about some child that gets lost in the woods. They, they, maybe they live close to the woods and they get lost in the woods and and then the search party goes and looking for them, and sometimes they can be lost for days. Uh, and a search party goes and looks for them. Now, it goes without saying that if someone is lost, they want to be found. That, that goes without saying. If you're, if you're looking for somebody and you know they're lost and you know that they know they're lost, it's obvious that they want to be found. But in these news stories that we hear every couple of years, what we find out is that actually that's not true, especially with, with young children. They, they become afraid, and sometimes they will even hear a search party coming through the woods looking for them, and they hear the noise, and they become even more afraid, and they end up hiding. They end up avoiding the, the people that are actually looking for them, and sometimes the story ends up not very happily. Uh, sometimes the child may end up uh, succumbing to uh, the kind of the ravages of the elements, uh, and, and maybe they starve. Um, it often ends up happily, but not always. It's, it's possible to hide in plain sight. It's possible to hide even though you know you're lost. And you don't just have to look in the woods uh, for people that are potentially hiding. Sometimes they can hide right under your nose. Sometimes they can hide in the church. And what I want to talk about today is what it means to be a disciple and to know Jesus. 
the, the passage that we've been looking at um, for, for a few weeks now is from Matthew 28. So I want to read this. I want to read the Great Commission. Um, and basically this is about, about knowing Jesus and making him known. Then Jesus came to them and said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I have commanded you. And surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Now, when you read this passage, you know, we've had a lot of conversation about that this is not just for those disciples in a church like ours. It's just not for the, you know, the, the, the preachers that you hear on a regular basis. It's not just for the elders. This is for all Christians. We have responsibilities. But what I want to do is I want to, I want to stop because there's a halting point in here for me, and I, and I want you to see this halting point for you. Jesus says, therefore, go and make disciples of all nations. You can't make a disciple if you aren't one. It takes one to make one. And so what I want to ask you is, are you a disciple? And you might say, well, I'm a, I'm a Christian. Well, that's great. But that's not the term that's actually used by Jesus. It's not the term used in the New Testament, except we find it in the book of Acts when that term is used almost in, in a disparaging way. And in, the, in, in those old days, in the, in the first century church, the term Christian was actually a disparaging term. It was not, it was not meant with, uh, with compliment. They were known as disciples. Disciples are followers. And so we actually get our definition uh, of what a disciple is from another quote that Jesus had. It's actually on the back wall of our church. It's been on the back wall of our church for years. Uh, and it comes from Matthew four nineteen, where Jesus is talking to his closest followers. And he says, or they're not followers yet. He's inviting them. He says, follow me and I will make you fishers of men. In that invitation, we actually find the definition. Because when he says, follow me, that's something you do with your head. That's a, that, that's a, that's a choice. Follow me, and I will make you. Jesus is the one who transforms us. And we learn from the Gospels, and we learn from the writings of the Apostle Paul and the Apostle Peter uh, later in the New Testament that the transformation that happens in people happens when they spend time in the presence of Jesus. But Jesus is the one that transforms us. And so when he says, I will make you, that kind of, that, that kind of disciple is someone who has changed. They're not just following by choice intellectually with their head. They are allowing God to change them, uh, which is a hard issue. And the last part is, uh, he says, I will make you fishers of men. That is to be committed to the mission of Jesus. That is to allow yourself to be challenged to do the work. What I want to do today is I, I, I actually don't want to talk about the work. I want to talk about just the first part is, are you a disciple? What does it mean to be a disciple? What does it mean to, to be a follower of Jesus? What does it mean to believe in Jesus? Je Jesus' brother James, in the book of James, I think the second chapter, he actually tells us that, you know, believing is great, but that's not enough. It's necessary, but it's not sufficient. Even the demons believe. They know who Jesus is. The difference is they don't put their trust in him. They don't have a relationship with him. And that's what this is about. This is all about a relationship. This is about trust. Uh, we call it the word faith. Faith is simply belief in action. But the reason it's belief in action is because it's based on trust. And so what does it mean to actually have a relationship with him, to know Jesus? Well, there's a couple of passages of scripture I think are actually quite enlightening for us. In John 17, Jesus said, Now this is eternal life 
that they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. It's interesting when he says here that they know you. He's talking to his father about his disciples, that they know you. This word that, that he says know, this is not head knowledge. This is the kind of knowledge that comes from experience and intimacy. This is about relationship. This is a matter of the soul, the kind of the soul of the person knows another person. Husbands and wives probably arguably are the best example of this. If it's a, if it's a good relationship, if it's a good marriage, where they get to know each other so well at a very, very deep and intimate level. That's the word that's actually being used here. And so Jesus says, they, I just pray, Lord, that they would know us, that, that they would really have a relationship with us as you and I, Father, have with each other. But there's another passage, and I think this is an important one to understand. And I think we see this in the, the Apostle Peter in his lifetime. He kind of changed we followed him through the Gospels with Jesus and we could see all the things that he did wrong. And we see in, in his writings someone who was appreciably different than the Apostle Paul. Um, both came to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul was more of a heady kind of a guy. And I guess I would say that for much of my own life, I've, I've probably been more along the line of an Apostle Paul in terms of thinking. I like logic. I like Christian logic. I like to be able to see the argument behind things. The Apostle Peter, as he became older, he even himself said the things that Paul writes are hard to understand sometimes. So if you struggle trying to understand the Apostle Paul, you're in good company. But Peter was more about the relational side of things, and that's why he came to be known as, the, as the kind of the great elder in the church. He was very much relational, and he cared about people, and it was, about, it was really all about the relationship. Peter writes in 2 Peter, his divine power has given us everything we need for a godly life through our knowledge of him who called us by his own glory and goodness. This is a different word, knowledge. This is the, one of the, the failings of the English language for us is that we, we sometimes see these words and we think they all mean the same thing. This is about knowledge. This is the kind of knowledge that is used uh, about God, knowing, knowing his, his, his divinity, knowing his power, knowing that he is, the, he is the creator of everything. And it's about confidently trusting in his nature and knowing that his nature is unchangeable. That's what, that's what he's saying here. He says, this kind of knowledge, knowing who God is and trusting in that, that'll give us everything we need. Now there's another passage of scripture which I have to throw in here just to kind of balance it off. It's what happens when you are not known by God. Because while knowing God in this way can give you everything, not being known by God can lose you everything. And this is from Matthew chapter 7, Jesus' own words. He, he said, many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, do we not prophesy in your name and in your name drive with demons and in your name perform many miracles? Then he will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. Passage of scripture used to bother me immensely. For years and years, I thought, how can, how can somebody do all of these things and, and still not be accepted to God? Ah, I satisfied, my, I satisfied the logic in my mind. Maybe they actually really didn't do those things. But if you read carefully, Jesus doesn't say, no, it's not true. You never did those things. That's not what he said. He didn't deny the fact that they did those things at all. They were serving him in a very mighty way. 
what he said was essentially, but you had no relationship with me. You didn't let me know you. Because once again, the word known here, when he says, I never knew you, this is that intimate relational knowledge. You never allowed me to get inside of you, to know you. We never had a relationship. Just imagine a, a, a husband and wife who get married, uh, man and woman, they get married, and, and the, the, the bride does all kinds of wonderful things for her husband. She looks after his basic needs, but she just doesn't talk to him. And she never lets herself be known by him. And they go on, and they kind of go through the motions for years, and they kind of tend to each other, but she really never, ever has a conversation with him. She never tells him what's really going on deep at a deep soul level. And eventually they just kind of drift apart. Why? Well, because there was no relationship. Well, that's the message that Jesus is giving the church. He said, if you don't have a relationship with me, then I have no part in you. It's not about the things that you can do. Those are important. The Great Commission makes it clear. Those are important, but we got to get the order right. Some of you, uh, some of you know, most of you probably don't know this, but some of you know that uh, it's like 21 years ago, I had a major league emotional breakdown. And in the, in the one to two years that it took me to come back out of that, that emotional breakdown, what I came to realize was that I had ended up replacing my relationship with God by my service to God. I was so busy doing things for him that I never left any time to just be with him. And that's the only thing that sustains us. That's the only thing that, that, that allows us to have the ability to do anything. It also gives us the joy in serving. I don't know about you, but if there are times when you find that serving in the church, doing things for God becomes tedious, they become exhausting. Let my life serve as a warning to you. I found those same things. If your service for God does not come out of your relationship with him, if it does not come out of your love for him, then what's going to end up happening is you're going to start to find things becoming tedious. You're going to start to find that, that you're exhausted all the time because you're trying to do things out of your own strength. It's the relationship that we have by knowing him that gives us the strength to do all the things that, that we can possibly do. And as, as it says in Second Peter, his divine power has given us everything we need for life and godliness through our knowledge, through our, our intimate relationship with him. That's where it comes from. Well, it comes from him, but we can tap into that. We talk about that we are saved by faith, and we are. But we also know that it's not just belief. It's about trust. But what does trust look like? Back in my, uh, back in my teaching days, I, I, used to, I used to teach a lot of classes on, you know, what, what does smart trust look like? And there's many dimensions to trust. One of the ways that I, I learned to remember these because they became very important to me was that I learned, I learned the acronym RABBI, which is very fitting when we're talking about God, um, R-A-B-I. Trust can come from results. If, if, you, if you know somebody whose successes incredibly outweigh their failures, they're probably someone that you can trust. The A stands for abilities. Does someone actually have the ability that is necessary for you to trust them? Like I'm looking at the people in the room here this morning. Pastor Greg is sitting off to the side there. Um, I've known him for, for decades 
and I trust him. But there is a point. I'll say, Greg, I just can't trust you with this. And that's going to sound very personal. That's going to hurt his feelings. Because when we say the word trust or we say we can't trust somebody, that becomes very personal. It's like, oh, I thought we had a relationship. And I'll say, we, we do, but I need to have surgery tomorrow. And I just don't believe you have the ability to do that surgery. And so please don't be offended, but you are not the guy for me for this. So ability comes into this. Um, the B stands for benevolence. Do you know or do you believe that someone has your best interests at heart? And the I stands for integrity. Do you believe that someone is going to follow through and be committed to the things that they say that they are going to do for you? Well, we look at all four of those. We can talk about results. We can talk about abilities. We can talk about benevolence. We can talk about integrity. Every one of those things describes God. In fact, we get our very definitions of these things from the living God. He is someone that we can trust. And what it means to know him is to trust him, which means to rely on him in all of those ways. We do make an assumption when we talk about disciples. We make an assumption that we all know what that means. But what it really means, first and foremost, is having a relationship with him. Now, there are so many things in the church that that need to, need to be done. We, we want people to do things. And in terms of the Great Commission, you know, what does it mean to, to make disciples and how do you make disciples? Well, you're going to hear more about that next week and in the coming, in the coming weeks, uh, in the coming months, as we're trying to learn how to get better and better at this. Um, it's been something that's been burning passionately for, for quite a while. But what I've realized is that there are so many within the church who are stuck. They're, they're, they're just stuck in a growth stage. And they, they don't fully grasp what it is that they have to do. And my, my first inclination in the old days, the old me would have just said, oh, you're just not committed. You just, you just don't care. You just don't love God. And I would, I would attribute to, to them some kind of moral failing or character flaw and would say, That's, that, there's the problem. If I can just help you to become more committed, if I could just help you to erode some of these character flaws inside of you, if I could just make you care more. And for some, that may be true. Some may be just lazy. That may, that may be true. But in many cases, what I've discovered is that it's that they had no one to show them. They had no one to show them. Years and years ago, and I think it's, it's probably like 2005, if I, if I recall, um, a very small number of us went to a, a leadership event. And at that leadership event, there was a, there was a very powerful message uh, from one guy. It was a very short message. And some of you have heard me say this before, but I don't have uh, PEI farm stories to tell over and over again, so I'm going to tell the ones that I know. Um, this man said, here's the problem with the Western church. And he was part of the Western Church, and he's a pastor. He's also a clinical psychologist. And he said, here's the problem, and here's why it fails in many cases. He said, because most, most Western churches, evangelical churches, will, will preach the same three-point sermon every Sunday. Point number one, God is good. Point number two, you're not. Point number three, go try harder. And honestly, that's not a, that's not a completely incorrect characterization of many Western churches. 
many churches in Canada, many evangelical churches. We proclaim the name of Jesus. We are saved by, by, by our faith through the grace of God, 